0: invite you to stand now as we turn our attention to God's word this morning. We continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And this morning we'll be reading from Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I spent my undergraduate years at Duke University, and while I was there, I learned something interesting about a culture at a place like Duke. It seems on campus that everyone knows that they're part of an elite institution. And so there's this general sense, you know, we're doing everything right here. We've kind of got this figured out and we're, we're pretty pleased with ourselves i don't know if you've been at a place like that like everyone else i was excited to be there to do my best to get a degree to get a great job and this was all rolling along smoothly until my junior year and i stepped into a class called philosophy of education professor ben ward was the professor of the class he was different he seemed more laid back more approachable he had an interesting story actually he's a bit of a musical savant. And when he was a younger man, he played the organ in Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral, which was pretty interesting to me. But then as a professor, he was there challenging our culture's approach to education. He basically was saying that we've turned education into a commodity. It's all focused on making grades and passing classes and getting degrees. And maybe you young people can feel the weight of that. And then at the end of four years, we get this really expensive piece of paper called a diploma. And we think, now I have education. And since we have it, Dr. Ward was saying, we don't think we need to keep learning for a lifetime. It's just a commodity. So Dr. Ward was one man standing there sort of challenging a whole institution. He looked around, saw all the activity on campus, but he was asking, you know, what's the real impact of all this busyness? And he wondered if what we call education is really changing our hearts. And I share that because what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is similar to what Dr. Ward was doing in the classroom at Duke. The scribes and Pharisees were the elite in the Jewish religion. It seemed like they were doing everything right, or at least they thought they were, and they were pleased with themselves. And then this strange teacher shows up, Jesus of Nazareth. No one's from Nazareth, it's any good. It's not from the right town. He didn't go to the right schools. He doesn't live like they do. He doesn't teach like they do. They were always talking about the law, but Jesus is talking about a father who loves and has grace. And then Jesus hangs out with the wrong people, and yet all the people are hanging on his words. So the religious leaders, they feel threatened. And then to add to it, Jesus is criticizing them from time to time. It's like Jesus knows what they call religion maybe isn't really changing people's hearts. So they start to think, well, he's come to abolish the law and the prophets, and that's how we'll get him. You know, you don't really keep with the law and the prophets. You're bringing a new kingdom and a new law. And I think Jesus knew that that's where they were. And so he speaks to that in our passage this morning. He's talked about the character of his followers and the Beatitudes, and then we looked, about, looked at what he expects from his followers in terms of their impact at their salt and light in the world. And then this morning, he's teaching us about the kind of righteousness that he expects from his disciples. This is like a general introduction to the rest of Matthew 5. So if you want the specifics, keep coming back because next week we start taking on specific issues. But even in this intro, Jesus makes several really astonishing claims. The first thing I want us to see is that we need a greater righteousness. If you look at Matthew 5, look at verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The gospels have formed our picture of the scribes and Pharisees, but we have to remember in Jesus' day, these men were well-respected the scribes spent all their time teaching and explaining and even making copies of the law. Their whole life revolved around the word of God. And the Pharisees were well known for being holy, for the way they lived. They, they'd written this code of ceremonial acts that was even stricter than the law of Moses. They had rules and regulations, it seemed like, for everything. And so everyone saw them as pillars of virtue. These were the heroes, the leaders of the Jewish religion. So you'd want your son to maybe be one of these guys. You'd want your daughter to marry one of these guys. And Jesus preaching to people who put these guys up on a pedestal. And now he's saying your righteousness has to be greater than theirs or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Imagine everyone's jaw dropping. (laughs) We'll never be as righteous as the scribes and Pharisees. And now you're saying we have to be more righteous than they are. Jesus, how can anyone be saved? So I want to ask, what was wrong with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? In Luke 18, verse 9, we read that Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Translation, the story is for the religious leaders. And here's what Jesus says. This is Luke 18, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a pharisee the other a tax collector the pharisee standing by himself prayed thus god i thank you that i'm not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector i fast twice a week i give tithes of all i get but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying god be merciful to me a sinner and jesus says i tell you this man The tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is setting up this contrast between the revered Pharisee and the reviled tax collector, but the story doesn't go anything like what the people would have expected. So, how does Jesus describe the Pharisee and the tax collector? And where do you see yourself in the story? The first thing to see is that the Pharisee is proud. He's like the people Jesus describes in Matthew 6, 5. He loves to stand and pray in the synagogues, but his prayer isn't really about God. It's about himself. He's so high on himself, so he's always looking down at others. He actually reads his resume to God in his prayer. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He thinks he's doing everything right, and you can tell he's pleased with himself. But the tax collector is humble. He stands far off. He won't even look up. He beats his breast. He's so low that all he can do is look up and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee's righteousness is mostly negative. It's about who he's not and what he doesn't do. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, not like this tax collector. Do we ever define ourselves by the negative, by what we're not? I'm not this. I don't do that. I don't hang out with those people. Interestingly, the Pharisee doesn't seem to need anything. He doesn't ask God for anything. But the tax collector knows he's not okay. He knows he's a sinner, so he begs for mercy. The Pharisee's righteousness is also external. It's all about actions and appearances, There seems to be no awareness what's going on deeper in his heart. But the tax collector's righteousness is internal. You can tell something's going on in his soul. The Pharisee essentially worships himself. He's satisfied with himself. It's like he basically glorifies himself. But the tax collector in his approach is actually worshiping God as messy as it is. He's hungering and thirsting for righteousness and that brings glory to God. And in the end, the shock is that the Pharisee is actually not right with God. In his pride, he can't be right with God. Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the tax collector is right with God. Jesus says so. This man went down to his house justified, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So if you think about the Beatitudes that we've studied for a while, in Jesus' little parable, who's poor in spirit? Who mourns? who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who is pure in heart, shockingly, it's the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Are you more like the Pharisee or the tax collector? In the rest of Matthew 5, Jesus takes aim at what the religious leaders taught. Six times he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, He's not saying, this is what Moses said, now let me set the record straight. He's actually saying, this is what the scribes and Pharisees have been teaching you. Now let me tell you what Moses actually meant, because they've led you astray. Jesus shows us the heart of the law because the teachers missed it. Their righteousness focused on external, but missed the internal. On actions, but missed the motivations. On doing, but missed being. On the negative, but they didn't think about the positive. On the letter of the law, but they missed the spirit of the law. And I think we all know this is not the righteousness that pleases God. Some of Jesus' harshest words are in Matthew 23, where he talks about the Pharisees. And six times he calls them hypocrites. He says they preach, but they don't practice. He says they do everything to be seen by others. He calls them whitewashed tombs powerful image beautiful on the outside but dead bones on the inside sadly we can be a lot like the pharisees we can look at the ten commandments and think i don't do those things i've kept the law i'm righteous but we're really self-righteous and self-righteousness is like the fool's gold of righteousness it can look really beautiful but in the end it's not worth much See, Jesus knows our hearts. We may not kill or commit adultery, but our hearts can be full of anger and lust. And these are just two examples that Jesus uses in the passages ahead of us in Matthew 5. He's painting this picture of the kind of righteous life that pleases God. It's a greater righteousness. It's really a perfect righteousness. And left to ourselves, we don't have it. We don't have the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So how will we enter the kingdom of heaven? God demands a greater righteousness. That seems like bad news. But here's the second point. Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Look at verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Think about what Jesus means by the law and the prophets. Those two words basically designate the whole Old Testament, all these pages. God gave the law through Moses and then the prophets came along led by God to interpret the law and call people back to repent and return. The prophets applied God's word in the present and occasionally God used them to predict what would happen in the future. The law and the prophets. It's basically the whole Bible in Jesus' time. How does Jesus relate to that He says that he's not come to abolish them like the Pharisees and scribes feared, but to fulfill them. He didn't come to destroy or replace them, but to carry them out and to understand what that would mean. Just think about how we fulfill or carry out the law in our society. Take the example of stealing. We know that it's against the law to steal. So how do you fulfill that? Well, there are two ways. First, we don't steal. And if we don't steal, we fulfill the law. We've kept the law. But if we do steal, we have to pay a penalty. After we've served our sentence for breaking the law, for stealing, the law is fulfilled. You can't punish me again because I've paid the penalty. The law is fulfilled. And that's simple, but it helps you grasp the significance of what Jesus has done for us because he says he came to fulfill the law, but he actually doubly fulfilled it. He fulfilled it by keeping it himself and then by paying the penalty for those who couldn't keep it. So every moment of his earthly life, imagine this, Jesus perfectly kept the law of God. Negatively, he never sinned. Positively, he always did the right God-glorifying thing. So imagine having perfect motives and then doing perfect actions all the time. The law is ultimately, Jesus says, about loving God with all that we have and then loving our neighbor as ourself. Only Jesus did that flawlessly. Flawlessly. God requires this greater righteousness, and Jesus had it, a perfect spotless righteousness because he kept the law perfectly. And so he was able to be the perfect sacrifice for lawbreakers like us. What Jesus did on the cross was pay the penalty for his sinful people. In 1 Peter 3.18, we read that righteous suffered for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That's why if we're in Christ this morning, our hearts can be stirred singing before behold him there the risen lamb my perfect spotless righteousness. If we're in Christ when the Father looks at us he sees the perfect righteousness of his son we're covered because Christ fulfilled the law in our place. Jesus experienced what we deserve on the cross so that we can experience and enjoy what he deserves as a beloved son for eternity. So how did he fulfill the prophets? There's a proof text approach to this. We find a few key verses that Jesus fulfills and just kind of focus there. Like Micah 5, I knew Jesus was going to be born or the Savior was going to come from Bethlehem or Isaiah 53, he would be a suffering servant. And these passages are great. They're, it's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough because it doesn't do justice to Jesus' doctrine of scripture. If you look at verse 18, This is the reason Jesus says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You think about what is Jesus' attitude toward the Old Testament, towards this whole section here. It's the part of the Bible that many of us struggle to accept with the history and the wars and the stories. What does Jesus think about all that? He says the word of God is more permanent than the universe heaven and earth will pass away before the word of god will pass away he never says that he came to fulfill just a few verses he says he came to fulfill all of it down to the smallest letter and the smallest part of a letter it will all be accomplished jesus basically takes the bible and says if this says it god says it and i came to fulfill it all of it do you share jesus reverence for scripture for every word for every letter It's amazing to think no one has a higher doctrine of Scripture than Jesus, and it's not just right here. It's all over the Gospels. How can we say we follow Jesus and not think of the Word in the way that He did? And we see this focus on fulfillment throughout Jesus' life. At His birth, in Galatians 4.4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. At his baptism in Matthew 3, John the baptism is uncomfortable. He says, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus says, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Even at his arrest, this is on Jesus' mind. In Matthew 26, he says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then after his resurrection, talking to people on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, Jesus says, Jesus says, "'O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe "'all that the prophets have spoken. "'Was it not necessary that the Christ "'should suffer these things and enter into his glory?' "'And it says, "'And beginning with Moses and all the prophets,' "'the law and the prophets, "'he interpreted to them in all the scriptures "'the things concerning himself.'" I don't know what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, but maybe it was something like this. This is from a message that Tim Keller gave. He says, "'Jesus is the true and better Adam.'" who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing where he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a better covenant, a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. And then Tim Keller concludes, the Bible's not about you. <laughs> see, Jesus fulfills the characters, the themes, the institutions, the offices, all of it, the whole story. And when you begin to see this, when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, you begin to see Jesus on every page. In 2 Corinthians 1 Paul says, for all the promises of God— Find their yes in him. And on the cross, Jesus says it like this. It is finished. He did it. He fulfilled all of it. Do you believe this? It'd be miraculous if one person fulfilled a handful of prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus claims that he came came to fulfill all of them. So don't miss the glory of Christ on display here. Now think about why did Jesus do all this? to free us from the curse of the law, from having to fulfill it ourselves, from having to try and try and know that we failed and to feel cursed, and so that we might live a new life by the power of his Spirit. That's what Paul was saying in our assurance of pardon in Romans 8. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets so that he could give his righteousness to us. There's no more condemnation. We're covered but also to live his righteousness through us. As Paul says, we walk uh, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He came that we might live a new life by his Spirit. That's important because righteousness is not just a legal declaration. We love the doctrine of justification. It's glorious. It's good news. But there's more because the Lord wants to work that righteousness into our lives, so that over time, little by little, we actually become more righteous, which means we actually become more like Jesus. And that's not legalism. It's not trying to earn God's love by living righteously. It's living righteously because we already have his love. Think about if you love someone. What's your heart in that relationship? You want to do what they love. You want to do what pleases them. And the law is a reflection of the character of God. So as we keep it, We become more and more like Jesus. And that pleases him. It brings him glory. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Jesus lived, died, and rose again to give us a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees legally and then experientially. Do you know him? Are you covered by his righteousness? And is that righteousness growing as you walk by the Spirit? Is your righteousness not just external, but internal, not just in your actions, but in your motives? Not just your doing, but your being. Not just the negative, but also the positive. And not just the letter of the law, but the Spirit. Don't you want that? It's the righteousness of Christ that he wants to grow in his people. And think about it, wouldn't that be The salt of the earth and the light of the world in 2013 our son will was born he's nine now and our pregnancy with will was simple straightforward you might even call it boring (laughs) ann and i didn't know anything else so we thought you know we had this figured out and then a couple years later when we wanted to grow our family things changed we were able to get pregnant but we couldn't stay pregnant and we walked through four successive miscarriages, and each one brought more pain and more confusion because it didn't make sense to us, and it didn't make sense to our doctor. So Ann and I eventually went to see a specialist who put Anne through all kinds of blood work, and then we sat down with him. And when we sat down with him, he explained uh, what was happening with Anne, and it just sounded like bad news. You're never going to have a healthy pregnancy if you don't do anything and that bad news was hard for us to hear because it sounded like you're not enough and this is never going to work but then we asked him have you seen this before and the good news came i see this every day i deal with this every day i've been helping people like you for decades so if we do what you're saying like we could hopefully have another child absolute that's the hope and in 2016 our son John John, who's a bit of a fireball, was born, our little medical miracle. He barely let me stay for the second service. He wanted me to go home. (laughs) I share that story because it reflects the bad news, good news dynamic that's in the gospel. Because the doctor basically told us, you need something greater than what you have. Left to yourself, new life is never going to happen. And what I think Jesus is telling us today is you need a righteousness greater than what you have. Left to yourselves, new life is never going to happen. So do you see it? The bad news is the prelude to the good news. You might think Jesus is harsh in this passage, but he's actually very gracious to bring us to the end of ourselves where we would despair of ever putting together a righteousness that we could offer to God and say, hey, look, I've got it all figured out. You can't do it. I can't do it. The best thing we can do is stop trying to do it on our own. When we realize we can't do it when we realize we don't have it you know what that's called poor in spirit where we started this sermon series blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven if you're self-righteous you're not going to respond to jesus invitation you don't need him you're good but know this without jesus you have to fulfill the law and the prophets on your own and sooner or later that will crush you But if you've come to grips with the bad news, you're ready for the good news. And the good news is incredible. Christ invites you to open your hands and receive the free gift of salvation. If you sense him calling you, respond. Come to him. Look to him. Trust that he's fulfilled the law and the prophets for you. That he might give his righteousness to you and then live his righteousness through you. Maybe that happens for the first time today that you look to Jesus or maybe today is just a reminder you've been walking with him and you receive that but now you feel like you have to kind of do it on your own and stay in his good graces. No, Jesus is our righteousness from beginning to end. And realize this, Jesus has seen your case before. He deals with it every day. He's been saving and changing people like you and like me for centuries and he can bring new life new righteousness where it seems hopeless. So friends, don't be like the scribes and Pharisees. They just, they looked at the law and they just did their best to conform to it. But we get to look to the law giver and be transformed by him. So look to the one who loved us. Look to the one who came and fulfilled the law and the prophets for us to give us an even greater righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we're amazed that Jesus would say he came to fulfill all the law and the prophets. And we're even more amazed that he has done it. Lord, we pray that you would stir our hearts to see this and be amazed at it, that we would rest in your righteousness. And we pray that by your spirit, you would work that in us so that more and more we look like Jesus, not just on the outside, but on the inside from the heart and working its way out. That we might truly be different, that we might be salt and light in this world that needs to see you. So Lord, guide us and help us to apply this word to our lives. Be with us now as we sing. Thank you that you've hushed the law's loud thunder so that now we just experience the, the reign of your grace in our lives and how it changes us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.